Africa, Zola Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa, as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 902. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tavisolu Hoko and Figile Limwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, Belgium mourns after deadly terror attacks in the capital Brussels and U.S. President Barack Obama's trip to Cuba ends with a call for closer ties. In economics, South Africa's president in France to launch UN Commission and in sports news, Casta Semenya and Elroy Gallant get Olympic qualifying times. The first up the news with Onel Nzinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Now looking at news update, Belgian police have issued a wanted notice for a man suspected of involvement in a series of attacks in Brussels, which killed more than 30 people and injured 200 more. They have issued a photograph of a man as he pushed a luggage trolley through the main airport. Police earlier said they had found a bomb belt in the airport. Another bomb has since been destroyed. Islamic State say they were responsible for the bombing. Police are meanwhile carrying out searches in the Brussels district of Shabiek and Jetta. Meanwhile, the African Union Commission has condemned the terror attacks on Brussels airport and a metro station in the Belgian capital. In a statement, EU Commission Chair Nkosazanathamene Zuma expressed her condolences to the families affected by the bombing. She says the AU rejects all acts of terrorism and violent extremists for whatever purposes. Lamine Zuma has committed the AU to working with the international community in the fight against terrorism. Senegal has voted overwhelmingly in favor of limiting presidential terms to five years. Interior Minister Abdoulaye Diallo said that 62% voted yes on the constitutional reforms, while 37.1% voted against it. The referendum proposed by President Macky Sali intending to reduce the presidential mandate from seven years to five was rejected by Senegal's top court in February. Sala had said reducing his own mandate would set an example within Africa where many leaders cling to power beyond their set term. Lesotho Minister of Police Monyane Mulelegi has accused opposition supporters of being behind a fire that gutted a shopping complex in Butabute. Mulelegi's claim were followed, claims were followed by a warning from the Deputy Commissioner of Police, Kiket Omonaheng, that they are investigating sabotage in another fire. A government public gathering house was burnt in the neighboring district of Lirebe. Ntakwane Ngatane reports. Two major fire incidents in two neighboring districts in a few days and the government and police suspect sinister motives. But opposition loyalists have taken to social media to warn the minister not to jump to conclusions. The fact is that private businesses, including ShopRite, have suffered losses and the number of Basutu will be jobless while investigations get underway. 
And finally, a judge on Tuesday adjourned the criminal negligence trial of popular Nigerian preacher T.B. Joshua over a fatal building collapse at his Lagos mega church. Joshua's church trustees and two engineers are accused of criminal negligence and involuntary manslaughter after the 2014 collapse of a guest house at the synagogue church of all nations that left 116 people dead, most of them South Africans. Lagos High Court said the case would resume on April 8th for arguments after a fresh challenge was brought by the defendants to halt the trial. Channel Africa News, I'm Monalintzinzi. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa, P.O. Box 91313, Oakland Park, Johannesburg, 2006. You can also send us SMS to plus 27823325905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8 6 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now there's been international condemnation of the terror attacks that occurred in Brussels on Tuesday. U.S. President Barack Obama called for unity while European leaders pledged their support for Brussels and said they would unite to fight terrorism. The series of attacks left at least 34 people dead. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility for the attacks amid many unanswered questions. From London, Catherine Drew reports. Around 8 o'clock in the morning local time, Belgian authorities responded to a double explosion at Zaventum Airport, where 11 people were killed in the departures hall and over 80 were wounded. Around one hour later, the city found itself dealing with a second major attack following an explosion on a train in the Malbec metro station killing around 20 people and injuring over 100. There was confusion and fear as commuters were evacuated from the station. International condemnation of the attacks was swift, as many European countries, including the UK, France, the Netherlands, Germany and Spain, employed greater security measures, particularly around travel hubs and international border crossings. British Prime Minister David Cameron held a meeting of his cabinet ministers and senior intelligence chiefs after he expressed his sympathy and solidarity with Brussels. 
These are appalling and savage terrorist attacks, and I've just spoken to the Prime Minister of Belgium to give our sympathies and our condolences to the Belgian people, and we absolutely stand with them uh, at this very difficult time. These were attacks in Belgium. They could just be attacks, just as well be attacks in, in Britain or in France or Germany or elsewhere in Europe, and we need to stand together against these appalling terrorists and make sure they can never win. Uh, I've also made sure that we've offered every support to the Belgian security and policing and intelligence forces at this time. French President François Hollande said the incidents had occurred in Brussels, but that this was an attack on Europe. He said the whole world needed to be concerned with this. U.S. cities such as New York also reviewed their security arrangements. U.S. President Barack Obama called for unity in the face of the Brussels terror attacks. Speaking during his trip to Havana, Cuba, Mr. Obama said the United States would do all that it could to help bring those responsible to justice. This is yet another reminder that the world must unite. We must be together, regardless of nationality or race or faith, in fighting against the scourge of terrorism. We can and we will defeat those who threaten the safety and security of people all around the world. Tension is understandably high in many European capitals, many of which, like Paris, London and Madrid, have suffered their own deadly terrorist attacks in the past. Chris Phillips, former head of the UK's National Counter-Terrorism Security Office, says terrorist tactics are constantly evolving. It does appear that one of the uh, one of the attacks at least was a suicide bomber. There's no reason to think that the next attack would be exactly the same, and it could just be left luggage or something that's that's totally different than we've seen before. So the police have to be on their toes. But of course, as soon as as soon as the terrorists have got have got bombs and guns in their hands, then it's pretty much too late. You're, you're really struggling to, to prevent that. So while Brussels continues to be in lockdown, increased security and high tensions persist in other European countries, which know only too well that they are also a target for extremists. Catherine Drew, London. One year into the conflict in Yemen, the humanitarian situation is extremely dire and in some areas near catastrophic. This according to the United Nations humanitarian coordinator in the country, Johannes van der Klaw. Yemen has been rocked by political instability for years. But a brutal civil war escalated last March between forces loyal to the president backed by a Saudi-led coalition against Houthi rebels. Elaborating more on the situation, Van der Klaw says four out of five Yemenis are in need of some form of aid, including food, clean water, health care and shelter. The humanitarian situation in Yemen as a result of the escalation of the conflict a year ago, is uh, extremely dire, if not in certain areas uh, near to catastrophic. Yemen was always marked by a very um, humanitarian situation which was uh, already of a protracted nature. Already the majority of the Yemenis were in need of some form of humanitarian assistance for many years, and that has only been now aggravated. The situation has worsened the escalation of the conflict since a year. At the moment, uh, four out of five Yemeni is in need of some form of humanitarian assistance, be it access to clean water, health care, food, non-food items, shelter. Yemen, being a very poor country, being in conflict, is still the country in the region which hosts the largest number of Somali refugees and also a considerable number of uh, refugees of other nationalities like 
Ethiopians, Eritreans, Syrians, Iraqi. So um, uh, it's not only for the Yemeni themselves that this conflict has led to a lot of impoverishment and also displacement, but it's also for the refugees. How many people are displaced and how many refugees are currently in Yemen and still coming through to Yemen? Yeah, so first of all, the current conflict has uh, resulted in, uh, in, in massive displacement within Yemen. Yemeni don't have the tendency to seek refuge abroad, although still more than 50,000 have done so in the region. But the large majority of Yemeni who have to leave places because of the conflict or because there is no longer any assistance available move elsewhere in the country. We now count 2.4 million what we call internally displaced persons. That is a staggering number because if you look at the total population of Yemen, 25 million, that's near to 10%. One out of 10 Yemeni at the moment is living elsewhere in the country. What kind of support do you provide to them? As you are an ACR, we provide shelter support. I mean, they need, of course, a place to live. So either we help them where they have joined host families with some money to pay the rent, or they have um, shelter in unfinished buildings or in schools, or in what we call collective centers. We do the rehabilitation of these centers. We make sure that the services are there, that they have access to water, and also to um, food and non-food items. So this is the type of support we provide. We also support non-material, something that is much more protection assistance, because they have lost sometimes the houses they land, they need legal assistance. The most vulnerable amongst the internal place have often the women, the widows, the children, the elderly people, they need specific assistance. And um, in general, um, this population is deprived of their rights. Um, it's very difficult for them to have access to services. They're also within the Yemen population, marginalized groups. They're discriminated. So the UNHCR tries to improve their situation amongst the IDPs by offering specific protection. What is the cost of the humanitarian um, operation uh, that uh, the UNHCR is providing in uh, Yemen and how much of that amount have you uh, perceived for 2016? The UNHCR in 2016 would need some $125 million for support to the refugees, for its programs in support of the IDPs and also um, to support its program to deal with these um, new arrivals at the Yemeni shore. That is what the UNHCR would need. Uh, the humanitarian community in its totality in Yemen would need much more, 1.8 billion U.S. dollars. Now, um, the UNHCR, which, uh, as I said, would need some 125 million dollars out of the total, has at the moment received some 20 million dollars, so you can count that is um, uh, not even some 20% of what we would need this year. So throughout the year, we are um, confident that the donor community will come forward with money, but it's always difficult at the beginning of the year when you have so many needs to address and uh, your initial budget is, uh, is far from satisfactory. So we call on the international community to, to um, generously invest this money in the humanitarian situation in Yemen because it, 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 there's also a risk that with the major crises in Syria and in Iraq uh, also in the around the Mediterranean, crisis in Yemen, which is complex and very voluminous, tends to be forgotten. That was Johannes van der Kloor, United Nations Humanitarian Coordinator in Yemen, and he was on the line from Sana'a, speaking to UN Radio's Tsigu Chifero. Channel Africa is turning 50 this year. And to celebrate this milestone, Channel Africa invites you, our listeners, to send us anniversary messages. It's simple. 
Just call us on this number, plus 2783-913-3000, and follow the prompts to leave a short message. We would love to hear from you, and we are looking forward to hear your well wishes. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 902. Now, the Botswana Media and Allied Workers Union and the Botswana Editors Forum have declared a media blackout on the ruling Botswana Democratic Party. They say the arrest of journalists and government's sudden cancellation of advertisements with independent media houses have made it difficult for them to practice journalism in the country. Last week, a journalist was arrested for getting access to an alleged classified file from the president's office. Lucas Mutibedi reports. The Botswana Media and Allied Workers Union and Botswana Editors Forum, two of the biggest media practitioners in Botswana, have declared a media boycott on all the ruling party's events. This comes after a journalist, Sonny Siritsem, was arrested after receiving a leak file from the office of the president last week. He is now in custody pending the completion of the police investigation. His arrest has sparked a volley of reaction from the media houses, which have been complaining for years about what they called strict laws which make media independence difficult. Last year, an editor of a prominent newspaper was also arrested. This brings the number of journalists arrested in three years to six. Media unions have described this situation as shocking for a democratic country, adding that other media practitioners are uncertain to continue reporting. The president of the Botswana Media and Allied Workers Union, Filmon Meso. Continuous harassment of journalists by the the state agents. And then what we have said is that in most cases those charges will later be dropped, which we feel that is just an actual way of actually... Uh, threatening the journalists and making them to some of them to to fear on reporting on issues of corruption that is happening within within government. And then on the issue of the harassment of journalists, the the ruling part that is the BDP, they've been quiet. The Botswana Editors Forum, which has been critical of government about what they called mistreatment of journalists, has also entered the fray. The forum says. It will encourage editors of different media houses not to cover any of the ruling party's events. The forums, Spencer Mohabi. Uh, the, the issue of blackout against the ruling party has basically been negated by the latest arrest, yet another arrest of a journalist in Botswana, uh, simply for trying to do what they are supposed to do. Uh, why the ruling party? It is because the ruling party is in control of all the state machinery, be it parliament. It is the only party that really has the power to stop the ongoing arrest. On the other hand, the Botswana Democratic Party say they are aware of the declaration against them after receiving the letter of intention this week. The party's general secretary, Bozalon Tuani. 
Uh, our view is that there's no problem at all. They can go ahead and, from what I understand, the letter has been submitted to the office. We'll look at the contents of the letter and we'll take it from there. But we have no problem at all with engaging uh, with the media workers union on any issues that they raise in that letter. We cannot be accused of harassing the media. Several active media analysts from the University of Botswana have refused to comment on the matter, fearing reprisals. Furthermore, the ruling party has admitted that coverage blackouts on their events would not be good, saying they will start a dialogue and negotiations with media stakeholders to resolve the current standoff. And that report by Selo Tadai. A high-ranking army officer in the Burundian military was killed yesterday at the army headquarters in the capital, Bujumbura. The attacker has not been apprehended, but army officials say investigations are already underway to identify him. From Bujumbura, Bernard Bankukira reports. In a press statement signed by the Army Chief of Staff and read by the Assistant Spokesman Clement Chimana later in the evening of this Tuesday, the Burundian Army announced the death of Lieutenant Colonel Darius Kurakure following a murder attack that occurred in the premises of the Defense Ministry and Army Headquarters. He said the perpetrator is still on the run as efforts to arrest him did not succeed. On this Tuesday, March 22, 2016, around half past 12, a Burundian Army officer known as Lieutenant Colonel Darius Kurakure was murdered by a criminal in Burundian military uniform. This incident took place as members of the staff and defense ministry had left for their lunch break. The killer immediately vanished, leaving his gun used to kill him. The military from the Burundi Defense Force followed him as he was fleeing, but in vain. Investigations are already underway to identify the killer. The Office of the Military Staff condemns all similar crimes and urges all the military, wherever they are, to remain serene and reject whatever might intend to divide them with the aim of destroying the Burundian Lieutenant Colonel Darius Kurakure was the commander of Muzinda Barracks, a military installation located at 20 kilometers away from the capital Bujumbura. He was a close ally of President Pierre Kolonziza. Lieutenant Colonel Kurakure played the forefront role in foiling the May 13, 2015 military coup. He had also become so famous in fiercely chasing down all anti-third term of President Pierre Kolonziza, particularly in Mtakura neighborhood, one of the great opposition strongholds in the northern capital Bujumbura. Till now, motives behind the killing remain unknown, but messages circulating on social media across the country allege the assassination of the army officer might be ethnically motivated. This incident is part of others that portray a latent mistrust within the Burundian army since the breakout of the current crisis hitting the country in April last year. As a matter of fact, as anti-third term protests were reaching their climax, a group of soldiers tried to overthrow President Pierre on May 13, 2015, before being contained. Three months later, Lieutenant General Adolf Nchimimana, former intelligence chief and close ally to President Kurunziza, was killed on August 2nd by a group of military. In November 2015, the chief of staff escaped an ambush by a group of soldiers who missed their target. On December 11th, 
four military installations in the capital Bujumbura were simultaneously attacked. An opinion says the attack would have not succeeded if there were no supporters of the attackers inside the army. All these incidents create confusion among the population, fearing of a possible split of the army, which might cause a lot to Burundi. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira, reporting from Bujumbura. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is in Lyon, France, to co-chair a high-level UN commission focused on creating millions of healthcare jobs in developing nations. The president will chair the commission alongside French President François Hollande. President Zuma said the commission aims to address what he calls the triple challenge of unemployment, poverty and inequality. Our correspondent Dan Whitehead reports from Lyon. Doctors, nurses and care workers. A growing and ageing population worldwide means more of those are needed. The World Health Organization predicts that by 2030, low- and middle-income countries will have a healthcare worker shortfall of some 18 million. President Zuma arrived here in Lyon, where he will join French counterpart President Hollande to officially open a new task force today aimed at tackling this issue. South Africa's Minister of International Relations, Nkwana Mashabane, is among the delegation. Why now? Why this commission? Why this thought? Is because if we go at the rate we're going, by the time you mentioned, we will have that particular uh, shortage. Because every, every second, every minute a new baby is born and the shortage will, would increase. So we need to nip that in the bud. The Commission will focus on creating what it calls decent jobs to stimulate economic growth in developing nations. The Commission puts President Zuma on the world stage at a crucial time for South Africa. But aside from the core aims of job and economic creation, politically this is important for both South Africa and France. Jean-Christophe Hust is from the Royal Institute for International Relations. South Africa is an emerging market and France wants to be able to, to um, get into that market and for that their relations are very important because they, they both want to grow. Zuma needs as many jobs as possible. Around 20 commissioners representing governments, businesses and civil society groups will join President Zuma and Hollande in Lyon. The commission will meet again in New York this September before reporting on its findings by the end of the year. Dan Whitehead, Lyon, France. U.S. President Obama's trip to Cuba has come to an end after an historic three days. He gave a speech on Cuban state television calling for closer ties between the countries and praising the influence of Nelson Mandela. But as John Beaver reports, there is a lot more work to do before normal relations between the two old enemies. They may be two very different countries, but they share a national pastime. To end his trip to Havana, President Obama spent an afternoon at the baseball with his opposite number, President Castro. Both were there to enjoy the game between the Cuban national team and the visiting Tampa Bay Rays. The day had started very differently with a speech broadcast live on state television. President Obama first condemned the terrorist attacks in Brussels before moving on to address the reconciliation with Cuba, acknowledging past problems. Some Americans saw Cuba as something to exploit, ignored poverty, enabled corruption. And since 1959, we've been shadow boxers in this battle of geopolitics and personalities. I know the history, but I refuse to be trapped by it. 
The president also made reference to how Nelson Mandela's death had helped bring the two countries together. But President Castro and I could both be there in Johannesburg to pay tribute to the legacy of the great Nelson Mandela. And in examining his life and his words, I'm sure we both realize we have more work to do to promote equality in our own countries. President Obama then used his final day in Cuba to meet members of the political opposition at the recently reopened American embassy. That decision almost certainly not popular with Raul Castro, but as Air Force One took off, this trip was being widely hailed as a huge step forward for relations between these two old enemies. President Obama now has to persuade the sceptics in the US Congress to support his plans and lift the embargo with Cuba. But that will be no easy task, and turning the positive words of the last few days into definite official action will require a lot more work. John Beaver, Havana. Hello, listeners. Join Channel Africa in its 50th anniversary celebrations. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa, PO Box 91313, Oakland Park, Johannesburg, 2006. You can also send us SMS to plus 27 Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. for listeners in America. You can now listen to Channel Africa by phoning 605-447-1711. So, if you're a Channel Africa listener in America, simply dial 605-47-1711. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our headlines up next with Onelin Tinti. Twin explosions in the departure hall of Brussels Airport prompt several countries worldwide to review or tighten airport security. Senegal votes to limit presidential terms to five years and Cote d'Ivoire's 2010 poor violence victims still awaiting justice. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelintinsi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
speaking on the margins of the 60th session of the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, Valerie Kaseyan from the NGO Indigenous Information Network in Kenya said indigenous women f- often lack knowledge to make an educated choice when it comes to female genital mutilation. Kasayen, who is a lawyer and also from an indigenous group, admits that a balance needs to be struck between respecting local cultures and empowering women. She elaborates more on how such a balance can be achieved. Empowering women is giving them the knowledge that they require in order for them to make a living for themselves and for them to find strength within themselves to exist as indigenous women and as women within the community without the oppression and without the mental, physical and emotional violence that is attached to gender in indigenous communities specifically because you must understand that within indigenous people we already face opposition from the government. We already are oppressed by the government but for indigenous women it's worse because not only are you oppressed by the government you're also oppressed by society. How is it possible for them to combine the respect for their own identity and culture and at the same time being empowered and freed from the oppression you are talking about? Well, of course, for indigenous women, they know nothing else other than their culture. So it is possible for them to combine um, both because look at the steps that indigenous peoples have taken in the past decade. The Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People came to being thanks to a majority of indigenous women. So you can you can see that it is possible, even on an international scale, for indigenous women to be able to maintain their identity, to be able to come to the UN in their traditional regalia, but to put forth ideas and to fight for their rights and for them to enforce their rights that have been granted to them first by the United Nations Charter as human beings and then now by the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People as indigenous women. You say that over the past decade things have changed for women? They've gained recognition. Is it the case in Kenya? How do you witness that change is happening? There has been changes in Kenya because since the promulgation of our new constitution, there has been more inclusion of women within the political sphere. There has been granted also more rights towards women within the constitution itself under Chapter 4, which is the Bill of Rights. So you can see that we we have come a long way because the constitution has become more inclusive, especially in my community in Kenya. And the government as well, which must be commended, has taken a more proactive role in ensuring that there is education of of the girl child, um, perhaps by, by the basic education scheme for all in Kenya. And number two, by ensuring that it is fighting strongly against FGM. But I must mention as well that there are indigenous communities and there are indigenous women who actively want to undergo the female genital mutilation. And this is only because they lack the knowledge, because they know nothing else. So this is why us as young empowered indigenous women must help them look at life differently but still maintain their culture to show them that there's a better way, that you can still let go of destructive indigenous practices but still maintain your identities. You describe yourself as an empowered indigenous woman. Yes, What does it mean enough. for you to be an empowered indigenous woman? For me to be an empowered indigenous woman, first of all, means that I can read and write. That's the first thing towards empowerment. And it also means that I have been fortunate enough to go through all stages of education. So I consider myself empowered because I have seen the world not from a traditional perspective and not from a local perspective, but from a global perspective. So I find this a great privilege and honor, and I will use this privilege and honor to empower those that are coming behind me. 
still you you feel that being an indigenous woman in Kenya to you it's a strong asset for your country for your society how is it important to value the contribution of indigenous women in your society well it's important for us to value the contribution of indigenous women within our society because of nothing else because of the traditional knowledge that they hold they hold knowledge to do with medicine they hold knowledge to do with agriculture they hold knowledge to do basically with survival because of of the societies they've been living in they have an advanced understanding of survival even perhaps more advanced than us empowered women because they have been put through the fire you know they they have learned through the fire so i believe because of their traditional knowledge and because of what they bring to the table and their grace and dignity as indigenous women i believe that their recognition is and i'm proud to be an indigenous woman it's such an honor for me That was Valerie Kaseyan from the NGO Indigenous Information Network in Kenya and she was speaking to UN Radio's Priscilla Lekom. According to the UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Education, Kishore Singh, outsourcing Liberia's primary school system to a private company would be a violation of the right to education. This following the government's announcement of its intention to move towards a public-private partnership system at the beginning of the year, saying it was the best way to radically improve literacy and numeracy. The Liberian Education Minister stressed that all children would continue to have access to free education, asked if there was any precedent for Liberia's decision to privatize part of its system. This is what Singh had to say. Primary education is being outsourced to a private company, and I don't think any government should even think of abandoning the total education system. I, to my knowledge... This is not only unprecedented, but it's unimaginable. The Liberian government is saying that education will remain free and that this is a public-private partnership that they are envisaging here. Yes, but that is very misleading. They will be paying huge amount of money, and that money can be used for the primary schools because if the schools are to be kept free, free of cost, government will continue investment in education, and there is no reason why... A private company is necessary to do that. It is a core public function of the state and the, the government should do that and there is no need to engage a private uh, company uh, for that purpose. Liberia says it has an education crisis on its hands. Only 50% of young women, according to latest figures, and 70% or so of boys even finish primary school. They, they're suggesting drastic measures for a drastic problem. That is exactly the point. That if... And, so many girls, particularly women, deprived of education in today's world, when it is a core responsibility of the government, then government must assume, then, assume that responsibility fully. Liberia has been subjected to all this crisis that still does not absolve them of their responsibility for human rights, particularly right to education, which is indispensable for exercise of all other human rights. If they are able to spare so much money, mobilize so much money just to give to a private company, why can't they use it for the purpose of education? Is there anything that the UN or UNESCO can do to prevent this policy from going ahead? Definitely. I'm speaking on behalf of United Nations, and I think it is a duty of the system of United Nations and UNESCO to recall their primary obligation under human rights law, right to education, to provide good quality public education for all children. And Liberia, like all governments, 
must be knowing quite well that UNESCO has a good track record of providing technical assistance for capacity building. So the, if the argument is they are not properly able to manage and respond to the education requirements, all the more reason to seek technical assistance from public international organizations. That was Kisho Singh, UN Special Rapporteur on the Right to Education, and he was speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. The UN Joint Office for Human Rights has called on authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo to stop treating civil society members as enemies of the state. The call has come out as the country prepares to hold elections for provincial governors on Saturday. The UN office believes things need to change urgently for the electoral process to be credible. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. It's a worrying situation the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights has described when it comes to the way members of the civil society are treated here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The UN office believes the civil society remains an extraordinarily important component in any democratic society, but it's really concerned about their situation here since the state actors look at them as enemies. This country is holding elections for governors of the 21 new provinces on Saturday. The UN Joint Office for Human Rights has insisted on the electoral process credibility and this needs a rapid change as far as human rights are concerned. And according to the director of the UN office here in the DRC, the civil society should be allowed to conduct freely activities and this will bring more credibility to the process. Jose Maria Aronaz. There has been a persistent repression of the activities of civil society by state actors, including the application of double standards and by the judiciary, including police repression and including almost the process of treating them as enemies of the state. Civil society is extraordinarily important component in a democratic society. The Secretary General in his visit last month highlighted that the elections will not be credible if they are not conducted in accordance with human rights. Human rights as they are reflected in the Congolese constitution, human rights and for all including civil society. Some of human rights activists are still detained here for allegedly pushing people to disobedience, but the UN Joint Office for Human Rights believes human rights defenders should be allowed to operate even when they criticize official positions. Unless such people are involved in illegal activities, the UN office doesn't find any other reason for this country's authorities to deny them freedom of demonstration, expression, assembly and association. Once more, the director of the UN Joint Office for Human Rights here, Jose Maria Aronas, explains. It's only a matter of democratic maturity to understand that Unless the individuals get involved in illegal activities of criminal nature, freedom of demonstration, association and assembly must be respected for all, not for organization, but for individuals. 
That's why we think that things need to be changed very rapidly for the electoral process to be credible, and that includes allowing sufficient space for civil society, human rights activists and human rights defenders to be able to operate even if they criticize official positions. Some of the civil society members and especially human rights activists have said they are always looked at as members of the opposition here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. SABC News is partnering with UN Women to galvanize attention and concrete action towards achieving the goals of women's empowerment and gender equality by 2030. The United Nations Entity for Women has brought together a broad coalition of media outlets from every region of the world to ensure as wide a reach as possible in the awareness drive towards a greater gender balance in the world. By signing the media compact, Outlets have committed to a range of concrete actions that include championing the cause of women's equality through editorials, greater inclusion of women as sources, and ensuring that women journalists are provided mentors and guidance for career advancement, among others. Aaron Berger reports. Recognizing the role of the media as Goal 5 of the SDGs moves from theory into practice. Thank you very much. Under Secretary General Pamzile Mlambo Nuka is UN Women's Executive Director. We are concerned about the levels and the extent to which women are represented and are therefore able to be influential. We are concerned about the stories about women and therefore how women are projected. We are concerned about the media as an enabler that could convey the stories that we all want to convey. I am particularly concerned about uh, how the media could help us to deconstruct the stereotypes about women. The UN Women's Entity has called for media companies to deconstruct patriarchy and urged women in greater numbers to be appointed to strategic positions in newsrooms. If you do not have women in strategic leadership positions, the ability to influence the direction is also um, limited. So that is why we need this relationship, because Agenda 2030 is not attainable without the media as a, a partner and also without us supporting the aspirations of the women in the media, which are also our own um, aspiration. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. I'm happy. Also speaking at the launch was the SABC's UN Bureau Chief, Sherwin Bryce Pease, who spoke to the strong leadership of women in the current newsroom. The following positions in the newsroom are currently held by women. Group Executive of News, that's the top position in our newsroom, is a woman. The Head of Television News is a woman. The Head of Radio News is a woman. I'm showing off now. The Foreign Editor, my boss, is a woman. The acting political editor is a woman. The deputy political editor is a woman. The national radio bulletin editor is a woman. The deputy sports editor is a woman. Do you want me to continue? The executive producer of the flagship news program on SABC television is a woman. So women lead in our newsroom. And that's not something a lot of newsrooms can say today. It's something we're very, very proud of. He said SABC News joined the compact due to the company's strong progressive policies on women's employment and gender parity. 
while working to address the stereotypes women have come to represent in the media. In many ways, the SABC has shadowed the drive at the national level, level for greater inclusivity, for greater diversity in the types of stories we do and the people we engage with, to best reflect those changes that were happening in this new democracy that South Africa was. Women, therefore, in our view, simply could not be ignored. Co-opted, along with 38 other media organizations around the world, to shift the message on women and to work towards a more equitable world by 2030. I'm Aaron Berger in New York. It's 8.47 Central African time, and we say good morning to Tabitha Luhoko with our economics update. Thanks, Balungile. South Africa's President Jacob Zuma is in the French city of Lyon to co-chair the official launch of the United Nations High-Level Commission on Health, Employment and Economic Growth. Zuma and French President François Hollande were appointed by UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon to co-chair the commission. The commission's key tasks include measures that will contribute to global economic growth. The fall in the value of the South African rand has helped boost the tourism sector. Statistics show income for tourist accommodation increased by almost 13% in January compared to 2015. Economist Aziz Jermaine. Uh, The main reason behind the spike has been the dramatic fall in the value of the rand, which has made South Africa one of the most attractive tourist destinations in the world especially at a time when competing tourist destinations such as Turkey, uh, Brazil uh, and other regions are experiencing either unrest or uh, terrorist activities. Even Europe itself is not seen as being as safe as it used to be. Nigeria's state oil company has failed to transfer 25 billion US dollars to the public purse between 2011 and December 2015. President Mohamedou Buhari has vowed to crack down on mismanagement and corruption in Africa's biggest economy. Buhari fired senior staff at the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation last year and earlier this month approved a revamp of its structure to aid transparency in the oil sector, which makes up about 70% of national income. Nigeria's central bank has unexpectedly raised the benchmark interest rate to 12%. The bank's governor, Godwin Emefiele, also raised the cash reserve ratio for commercial banks to 22.5% from 20% and it held the liquidity ratio at 30%. Mfiele says after a meeting of its monetary policy committee that the central bank would keep the Naira foreign exchange rate stable despite a sharp fall of the currency on the parallel market due to shortages of dollars. BG Egypt has suspended work at some Egyptian development projects after it failed to agree with the government on the price of gas. BG has stopped work at 9A plus and 9B after failure to reach an agreement on the fixed price to be paid for extracted gas. The development areas include several deep water wells in the West Nile Delta. 
The US dollar trades at 15.22 in South Africa, 10.95 from Botswana, 11.30 in Zambia, 6.9 British pound, 8.9 euro, gold 1.239 dollars, platinum 9.80 dollars an ounce, brand crude oil, 41 dollars, 4.0 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, my name is Tabiso Lohoku. Thank you, Tabiso. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. First up in our sports update this hour, we're betting off with cricket news. Proteas coach Russell Domingo says the loss of JP Dumini is a big blow. But any of the 15 players in the squad are capable of doing the job in the ICC World 2020 match against the West Indies in Nagpur on Friday. Domingo admits that the selection process to replace a two-in-one player like Domini will be tricky. But he is confident the squad can overcome the setback with the resources available in the squad. He says they will consider the option of playing two frontline spinners for the interesting VCA stadium conditions, which have produced low-scoring matches in both the men and women's matches played in the last week. He says it will be important to adapt as quickly as possible after the contrasting conditions at the one key stadium for their opening two matches. In athletics, Olympian medalist Castasimina and middle distance runner Elroy Gallant grabbed the headlines at the second Athletic South Africa's Asa Night Series at the Greenpoint Athletic Stadium in Cape Town on Tuesday night. The two athletes grabbed Olympic qualifying times in their respective events. Gallant ran a time of 13.2070 in the 5,000 meter race, almost five seconds under the qualifying time of 13 minutes, 25.00, while Simenia's 2 minutes, 00.23 time in the 800-meter race was well under the 2 minutes, 01.50 qualifying time and the fastest 800-meter run in the world this year. Simenia says she's very happy to have got the Olympic qualifying time and to have achieved what they've been training for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm quite happy with the time, you know. The way I run splits, you know, we, we're more even. So that, 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 that's, a, that's the main thing for us, you know, that's what we've been working for. So last, uh, you know, this past two, yeah, this past two, you know, months. So, yeah, I'm quite happy with the work. Just have to go back, you know, try to, to change for under two minutes now. Galan's impressive Olympic qualifying time was perhaps the biggest highlight of the evening. And halfway through the race, it looked like he was on track to beat Stephen Mukoka's South African record. Galan says it's still early in the season. And he's just happy to have already ticked off one of his goals. Yeah, you know, it's a bit tough. Record 13-11 alone is tough. I know Stephen went for 13-11, you know. But I told myself it's still early in the season. Olympic Games is in August, so really. I just went according to my, my plan. I said qualifying time. We'll do best to get qualifying time tonight, and I got it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm going to look to SS now, what's going to happen at SS. But I think it's coming down to technical race. But I'm really pleased with my 13-20. It's a qualifying statement, you know. It's a, a goal I can, I can make off, you know. Finally, Swaziland could qualify for the Gabon 2017 Africa Cup of Nations finals for the first time in their history if they prevail over their neighbor Zimbabwe in a home and away clash. African football correspondent Mark Omar has more. It 
between Zimbabwe and Swaziland, you may remember that recently there has been some talk of match fixing and it led to certain people uh, being suspended from the Zimbabwe Football Association's uh, Executive Committee. And in fact, South Africa and Zimbabwe Federation, the ZIFA and SAFA, have come together. They want to work to stamp out these things. So, of course, all eyes will be on the match. And, you know, there, there will be tension because, as you said, these two teams are leading the, 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 the log uh, and, and they want to enhance their position. Again, the, against the background of all that uh, uh, talk of match fixing and so on and so forth. So, well, in Lubamba, you never know. I think Swaziland of late have proved to be a strong team. So at home, they probably will win. Now, whether they will come and uh, get a positive result in Harare, uh, only time will tell. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Belgium mourns after deadly terror attacks in the capital, Brussels. And U.S. President Barack Obama's trip to Cuba ends with a call for closer ties. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutora Magaza and Jane Matebula, technical producer Charles Moyo and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Now taking us to the top of the hour. Fallen news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is DJ Bongs with a song titled Ofana Nawe.
Forever 